Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. So if you could just imagine a moment that uh, you and I are, are going to climb Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. Uh, it's north of India in the country of Nepal, and it's in the Himalaya mountain range, the tallest mountains on earth, and Mount Everest is the highest of the mountains in that mountain range, the tallest mountain on earth. And if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, it's, it's a, a long process to prepare for climbing that mountain. And then as you get to that mountain, you have to understand that there's really only two routes to the top, and it's very dangerous because the winds are like monsoon strength all year round, and even in the summertime, in the warmer season, it's still very, very, very cold, and if you are not careful, you could freeze to death up there. But the greatest danger of all, besides avalanches and freezing to death and falling down into an ice crevice and things like that, even more dangerous than that, what kills more people on Mount Everest is something called altitude sickness. And altitude sickness is when you get above a certain altitude, if you're not careful, your lungs begin to fill up with fluids and your brain begins to swell. And between the combination of those two conditions in your body, you begin to get disoriented, you get dizzy, you can't focus, you don't see what's going on. And you could easily get lost. You can get dis, dis, you know, just utterly uh, dismayed and befuddled and, and, and fall and, and fall asleep and wind up dying there and freezing to death. It's, it's the altitude sickness that kills more people on Mount Everest than anything else. Now, thankfully, that if, if you and I decided to climb Mount Everest, we could have help doing it we could engage the services of a group of people called Sherpas. Now the Sherpas are Tibetan people that live in the valley around Mount Everest. And they are people that have lived there for so long, for so many centuries, that there's actually been a genetic change in their bodies because of living at the high altitudes. You and I begin to suffer from altitude sickness and getting, get dizzy and disoriented when we get above 8,000 feet. But the Sherpas are able to endure altitudes above 23,000 feet. There's actually a physical change a genetic conditioning of their bodies that enables them to do that. The Sherpas have been there. Their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents have lived there. And they understand Mount Everest. They understand what it's like to live in the Chumbo Valley there, the national park around Mount Everest. And they understand the dangers. They know the routes. They know the times. They know the times during the day, what it's like to climb to the top of the mountain. And they're willing to take you there if you'll let them. I just want to say today, right off the bat, that raising children is like climbing Mount Everest. (laughs) And maybe you feel like you need a Sherpa, but I'm here to tell you that your kids need a Sherpa. And that Sherpa is you, mom and dad, and grandma and grandpa, and great-grandmom and great-granddad. That Sherpa is you, 
kids church teacher and nursery worker and teacher at school and librarian and coach and conductor scout master den mother that Sherpa is you and we have been called to help our kids reach the top now the top of Mount Everest in parenting is not my kid is making six figures he's got a great job what a great parent I am it's not that they got into an Ivy League school or they lettered in sports or they're the homecoming princess or the prom king. It's not any of those kinds of things. It's not that they got a promotion at work. It's not that they've, they've settled down and had their own great family living in a nice suburban home. Those things are not what's at the top of the mountain. What's at the top of the mountain is knowing Jesus and following him. That's what it's all about. That's the greatest thing that you can lead your kids to do. Now, sure, help your kids get an education. Help your kids find a career. Help them discover their gifts and purpose in life. But the greatest thing that you could ever do for your son or your daughter, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, the kids in your school, the kids on your team, the kids in your den, these children, what they need more than anything else is to have a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And you and I are the Sherpas that can help them get to the top. Partly because we've gone down that path before, partly because we've made a bunch of mistakes ourselves and we know the, the potholes, we know the crevices to avoid, we know the right path to take and some of us are saying, I'm not sure I know that right path. <laughs> you know what? We're learning. We're learning. And we can guide them in doing this. I want to encourage you today that if you are a follower of Jesus and you have met Christ and you're experiencing his transformative power in your life, one of the greatest ways that he will transform you is in your family. Now, a lot of people boast and say, you know, Jesus touched my life and he's changed me. I don't have these habits and hurts anymore. My habits are broken and I'm able to do the right thing now. That's all wonderful and good. But the acid test of whether or not we've truly been transformed by God is whether or not he's changing our relationships. And as we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians in the New Testament this spring, we've been looking at how he especially changes our family relationships. We spent a couple weeks looking at marriage. We've been looking at home life between husband and wife. But now we want to talk about what does it mean, this issue of passing on what we have to the next generation, helping our kids climb the Mount Everest of life, helping them meet Jesus and follow him. This is where Jesus Christ's transforming power really shows up and transforming us as parents to become the kind of people that always point our kids to Jesus. That's what we're called to do, and that's what the passage will help us do, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 and start reading at verse 1. And this is on page 979, 979, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you. And uh, we're going to just read these four verses. In fact, what I want us to do this morning is because I know everybody's tired and it's kind of a dreary day, just to help us wake up in case you didn't have enough coffee this morning. Uh, I'd like you to just stand up in your seat if you're able to. Stand up, take your Bible, and let's read it out loud. How about that? Okay? Good, loud voice. 
And if you're saying I have a different translation than you, it's gonna sound funny, that's okay. They'll think it's a charismatic church and we're speaking in tongues. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Ephesians chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to just say right off the bat that uh, this passage to me are principles of positive parenting. I don't mean to be alliteration crazy here today, but just the idea of positive parenting. What are the characteristics of positive parenting? What are the things that we can do that will help our kids climb that mountain and get to the top and really know and follow Christ? There are several things in this short paragraph that show us how we can be the kind of parents to help our, our kids really reach the top. Before we look at those five things that I think this paragraph mentions, I just want to make it very clear, just by way of overview, at looking at who's supposed to do what in the family, all right? In verse 1, notice that the children, like in the marriage passage and like next week in the passage about masters and slaves, as we're going to apply that to our work relationship, the person that's under authority is addressed first. And they're given the responsibility first. And they're given dignity and worth by being addressed first and honored first in this way. And the children, it says in this passage, have a responsibility. Now the assumption is, is that the children can also be filled with the Spirit. Because remember, the context of these relationships is back in chapter 5, verse 18, where the command is, be filled with the Spirit. And as the Spirit is to challenge and transform our marriage relationships, so the Holy Spirit is to challenge and transform our parenting, our parent and child relationships as well. And the thing I want us to notice also is that Paul, as he writes this, is expecting that the kids that are in the church service will take this seriously and go home and apply it. And another thing that I think he's trying to say is that he's basically talking to the the kids that are old enough to understand what is right and what is wrong and they can make a conscious choice about doing it. And so he's calling them out just like he calls out the parents in in verse 4 and he's challenging the kids, this is how you serve God. This is how you honor him. And the way you do it is by obeying and honoring mom and dad. All right? So he says, honor your mo- uh, obey your parents and the Lord because this is right, then honor your mother and father. There's a promise, and the promise is that it may go well with you and that you will live long in the earth. But then notice verse four. And this is the thing that I think is kind of remarkable because in verse four, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I would kind of expect him to write, children, don't provoke your dad to anger. I would expect him to write something like that, or don't tick off your mom, something like that. You know, she needs some peace and quiet. And, and I would expect, and I think the Jewish readers of this passage would kind of look at the heritage of Judaism, and they would expect Paul to say that. And the Roman Christians who are familiar with Roman law and Roman culture, they would expect Paul to tell the children again, don't make your mom and dad mad. But isn't it interesting that he focuses on dad? And I think he's right to say dad and not just mom and dad here. 
But he's saying, Dad, you've got a big responsibility. You've got to be very careful not to get so angry at your kids that you make them irritated and angry. And right away you're saying, now wait a minute, Uh, you know, parenting and child rearing is about the battle of wills. I understand that. You've had that experience as well. There's always anger when you tell your child to do something that they don't want to do, when you're reminding your teenager that they have responsibilities and commitments to honor and keep. So there's always that kind of a clash. I get that. I understand that. We, we know that. But dad, you need to be very careful that you're not irritating your children to the point where they just give up and get exasperated. And then at the end of verse 4, dad is given a special responsibility of teaching the children and training them, but then also instructing them in what is right. Does that mean mom can't do it? No, mom certainly can do it, but dad's the one as the leader, remember the head of the home, taking responsibility to make sure these things get done. Okay, so in this passage here, children are called on to obey their parents and honor their parents, and uh, parents are called on, especially dads are called on to teach and train and not aggravate and provoke their children to do what is right. What's the difference between obedience and honoring? Obedience is the idea of compliance. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. Honoring is an attitude of respect. But there's something else going on here. And again, this is kind of all introductory concepts here before we get into what are the characteristics of positive parenting. In verse 1, the emphasis, I think, is on the children who are still living at home, the ones who are still under authority. And you could say through elementary age up through middle school and high school and maybe even young adulthood before they go out on their own, leave the home and get married and all of that. Those children who are still living in the household, there's a responsibility to obey mom and dad. I understand that what that obedience looks like changes when, when you're a toddler and when your children are toddlers and, and there's very direct commands and very specific simple commands that are required there. There may be more freedom and flexibility as your child gets older, especially as they begin to hit adulthood. Obviously, there's responsibilities with that. The word honor, though, it means to show respect, but there's a nuance to it that we forget. Because everybody here still needs to be honoring their parents. Okay? Because it's showing respect, but it's not just showing respect. It's the idea of actually caring for them in their old age. And so I'm just kind of asking, you know, a lot of us, when we were growing up in more fundamentalist-style churches, you know, there was a heavy emphasis on us kids that were still at home. You better obey and you better honor your mom and dad. But what about now that we're adults and our parents are aged? Are we honoring them and caring for them now? That's what this passage is calling us to do as well. You continue to honor and respect your mother and your father, even in their advanced years, even though you've already got your own children, you're raising your own family, maybe you've got your own grandkids. You still have a responsibility to care for and love and honor your mother and your father. That's what verses 2 and 3 are reminding us of just to have that kind of care and concern for our parents, to watch over them and care for them that way. So this isn't just a message for little kids. This is a message for all of us who still have parents that are living, to be watching over and honoring them and caring for them in this way. So but what makes a parenting, this responsibility of 
caring for our children and training our children and leading them up the mountain to, to follow Jesus and to love him with all their hearts. What, what, what do you do? What are the things that we can do? I mean, life is crazy. We're, we're taking our kids to dance lessons and maybe scout troop meetings and ball games and there's all kinds of meetings at school and activities afterwards and then as they get older, there's driver's lessons and jobs and all this kind of stuff and youth group. You know how that youth pastor is. He's got them doing stuff all the time and all this kind of stuff is going on. All this stuff is taking place. How, how in the world do we lead our kids up the mountain to really know Christ and become more like Him? What, what do we do? The first thing that this passage to me as I'm reading this and just thinking about what the kids are responsible to do, if the children are responsible to obey, then the first thing that a parent does that's positive and helping kids grow and become more like Christ. The first thing they need to do is set wise boundaries. Just set wise boundaries. Parents need to give that kind of guidance to their kids. It's not just letting the kids decide to do whatever they wanna do. It's not just letting them have free reign, but it's setting those wise, careful boundaries. Mom and dad wanna give you direction. I, I, I understand that the children maybe at some times in their lives need very strong direction and guidance and specific tight boundaries. And that may relax as they get older and become more responsible and more independent. But there needs to be those clear boundaries of what's right and what's wrong. What's God's will and what's not God's will. What's proper for us to do as members of this family and what's not proper for us to do as members of this family. And that might look different from family to family, but God's will will look the same. The point that I'm trying to make is, is as mom and dads, we are responsible to set the tracks down, the railroad tracks, so to speak, for our children to follow. And if you're a young person that's here and still living at home, your job is to listen to mom and dad and do what they say and not give them any lip. You can ask why, and mom and dad should patiently explain it to you. But if you know and understand why, then you need to obey, and you need to do what they say. You need to do that. But mom and dad, make sure that your guidelines are reasonable. Make sure that they're based on Scripture. Make sure that they're the things that are practical for your family. And make sure that they're things that your child can do because sometimes we parents expect our children to do things that mentally they're not able to do, physically they're not able to do. And we have these unrealistic expectations with them. But parenting is setting wise, careful boundaries for the betterment of the child. Not, I want you to do this to make me look good. None of us parents would ever say that, but that's what we're thinking. <laughs> that's what I thought many times. It's not about that. It's what's best for my child. What will help them ultimately know Jesus and follow him? What will keep them safe? What will help them grow? What are the boundaries that I can set up that they could follow that? What are the tracks that I can lay down so that the locomotive of their life can follow? What are the wise boundaries I can give to them? Boundaries by necessity are restrictive because there's dangers outside the boundaries. So let's accept the fact that there are restrictions that we're imposing upon our kids. And it's okay. That's what cool parents do, is let their kids live within the boundaries for their safety, for their blessing, for their guidance, 
for their prosperity, but more importantly, for them to meet Christ and know Him and follow Him with all their hearts. So positive parenting involves setting wise boundaries. But not only does it involve setting wise boundaries, but you know, these kids are called on to honor mom and dad, right? They, it's a command. They are, just as they are to keep on obeying and keep on doing what mom and dad say to do, they need to also keep on showing respect and keep on honoring. That's why it's not something that we, we ever stop doing with our parents. We need to keep honoring them and keep loving them and keep respecting them. So. Can I just ask this question and kind of flip it on its head? I, I understand that the children are commanded to obey and children are commanded to honor mom and dad and show respect. And that's proper for them to do. They are obligated to do that before the Lord. But do you and I as moms and dads and as grandparents and great-grandparents, do we live in a way that's honorable? Do we live in a way that's respectable? Do we set the kind of example that the children can? Are we making it easy for them to honor us and respect us is what I'm asking. You might want to debate with me on this, and I'm willing to do that later on. But I think that the second thing that you and I do if we're going to be wise, positive parents is not only lay out those clear, careful, wise boundaries, but we're also going to show why it's worth honoring us that it's for their advantage to respect what we have to say, that it really is helpful and beneficial to them to do what mom and dad do, to follow our example and to listen to what we say and go do it and not give the argument about it. Okay. This involves doing the kinds of things that will add value to your child's life. You can't demand, I mean, you, it's proper to correct a child when they don't show respect, of course. But there's a problem if all we're doing is, I demand respect, I demand respect, you must show respect. There's a problem if your kid can't get it that my parent should be respected. So how do we add value to a child's life? What do we do? I think part of it is just coming to the place where we admit that our kids take a lot from us. They do, just like you took a lot from your mother and father. And so some of you are right now struggling to stay awake because your kids took a lot of sleep from you because of doing the laundry and cooking and you know, laying up at wake and laying, laying awake at night and worrying about them. Kids take a lot from you, there's no question. Kids take a lot from us, they cost a lot. They're physically draining and demanding. It, it's tiring being a parent, there's no question about that. But kids give too. They really do give a lot. And I'm not just talking about those cuddly moments when the baby is asleep on your shoulder and they're so angelic looking. I've heard that that's what happens. Let's put it that way, okay? I, I'm talking about kids, and not just when the kids say thank you, but, but kids give, Jesus said it this way, unless you come to me as a little child, you'll never be able to enter the kingdom of God. Kids show you what true faith is like. Kids are mirrors that are held up every day to show you what you're really like, to show you your need for Jesus. Kids ultimately point you to Jesus because just as they're trusting you and you're overwhelmed and you're saying, how in the world am I gonna raise this child and help them do what's right? How are we gonna pay the bills? I don't know how to answer this question. It's all about it's all about going to Jesus and getting the help and strength that you need to do it. 
And our kids give us those things besides the hugs and the kisses and, you know, the dandelion uh, bouquet that they bring you, you know, the, the, the little squiggly, swirly drawings that they've made that you have hanging on the refrigerator like it's a piece of Rembrandt. You know it's not. Kids give us those things, but they take a lot. I want to encourage us, too, to recognize that there's one thing in particular that I'm convinced is the most important thing that you and I could do to add value to our kids and show them that it's worth respecting us and honoring us. And that is the gift of focused attention. Focused attention is just when you're really locked in and you're listening to what the other person has to say and you value what, you say, what they say and you're really interested in what they say. It's that focused attention, not just time together in the car, not just time together at the ball game or at the concert, but you're, 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 you're focused in and you're listening to what they have to say. And I heard a, an excellent illustration of this on This American Life, a a radio broadcast on public radio. You can listen to it as a a podcast as well, This American Life. And they had a a story uh, last year about this time of a a guy named Mike uh, um, Sawyer is his name, Mike Sawyer, and he's a professor at West Point. He teaches writing to the cadets, and he lives in New York City. And he's a single dad, and he has a little girl by the name of Rosie. And at the time this story began to take place, Rosie was nine years old. And things had really changed in in Rosie's life. She used to live with her mother, but then she moved in with her dad. And because she had moved in with her dad in New York City, she was now going to a new school. And at the new school, nobody knew her. And most of the kids ignored her. Some of the kids bullied her. The teachers really didn't pay a lot of attention to her. And she just felt extremely lonely and left out. And she was really bothered by that. And on top of all that turmoil at school, her granddad, who she especially loved and adored, he passed away. And so like a a double whammy of deep, deep loneliness in this little nine-year-old girl. And Rosie says that she thought about this, and she says, you know, there is somebody that I really admire and love who could probably help me, and that's my dad. So she, when she went home, she began to try to engage her dad in conversation. Her dad's like a lot of us dads, and we bring our work home with us, and so he would be there in front of the laptop, churning out papers, writing reviews, grading reports, doing all this kind of stuff, and Rosie would come up and try to talk to her father, and, and dad would give these curt, like we dads do, these curt one-answer you know, one word answers and things like that. Not now, can't you see I'm busy? I'll talk to you later. Oh, that's nice, hmm, that's good, good girl. You know, that kind of, those comments that we dads do. And, and that was extremely frustrating to Rosie. So finally, her dad was kind of getting the idea that Rosie wanted to ask a bunch of important questions. So he just in kind of an exasperation as a challenge turned to her and said, look, Rosie, if you want to ask me a bunch of questions, why don't you write down all the questions that you want to ask me and I'll answer them for you. Thinking that would buy him some time. So Rosie did that. She went and she got some notebook paper and she began writing out her questions she wrote out nearly 50 questions. They were single-spaced written, you know, in a nine-year-old's handwriting on notebook paper, several pages. And the questions were, what is time? Can you explain it to me? What's the meaning of life? 
What happens after death? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Why am I here? And then the real kicker is, what is love? Explain. It's like essay questions in a philosophy course. And this is, this is the kind, these were the kinds of questions that Rosie was asking her dad. And so Rosie gives the papers with all nearly 50 of these questions to her dad. And her dad is like, whoa, like this. And he does what a lot of dads do, like I would do. He started dutifully researching the answers to the questions. He's getting out philosophy books and he's reading what Kierkegaard and other people are saying about this and what the great historians and writers on the different subjects. And he's compiling these long multi-paragraph answers, pages long to each of these questions. It took him three years to answer two-thirds of the questions. And the thing is, is that when he started giving Rosie the answer, she would just kind of listen and she'd get distracted and walk away. And then she'd say, oh, that's good, Dad, thanks. <laughs> that kind of stuff. And a reporter from This American Life, one of the producers, her name is Stephanie Fu, she heard about this story. And so she went to interview Mike, the dad, and re- interview Rosie. And as she was talking to Rosie, she said, why did you ask these questions? She said, I just wanted to talk to my dad. I don't really care about the answers. I just wanted to talk to my dad. And Mike's listening in, the dad, and she's saying, I did talk to you. And she says, dad, it's not like that. I'm talking about conversation. You talk to me. You tell me to go pack my book bag. You tell me to come to dinner. You tell me to clean up the dishes. You tell me that it's cold outside. You better wear your coat. You tell me how was school. You ask me how was school today, and I tell you. And that's, that's talk. You're talking to me. I want to have conversation where you look at me and you pay attention to what I say and you ask questions and you think about it and we go back and forth and we linger and we go over this kind of stuff. Rosie's saying, I want focused attention because I'm lonely and I need you. You know what, as parents, we are so busy, we've got so much going on, there's so many responsibilities that we have to maintain our houses and properties and and to work our jobs and keep the car running. And then we've got all these activities that our kids are engaged in, you know, sports and scouts and band and dance and hobbies and all this kind of stuff. And we're doing this stuff and we're going a thousand miles an hour and spending all this money and all this time and we're drained and we don't have time for each other to give a focused attention. And just like in marriage, if you're going to honor your spouse, you need to give them a focused, focused attention. In the same way, if you're going to help your kids climb that mountain and meet Jesus, so to speak, the Mount Everest of life, there's got to be times where you're adding value to them, and that's through focused attention. You're giving yourself in that way. And a lot of times, they don't care what the answer to the question of what is love. They just want to see it. And focused attention will help them see it. It's really critical. So, so far, I've shared with you two things that you and I can do that are positive things about parenting. By the way, I'm positive that parenting is one of the hardest things you'll ever do, but I'm also positive it's one of the best things you'll ever do if you do it. And I'm positive that it's worth it if you do it. We've said that you've got to set wise boundaries for your kids, and we've also said that you need to show why it's worth 
to honor you and you do that through investing in their life and adding value to their life and something that would really help you do that is focused attention. But this passage then in verse four begins to put a lot of weight upon parents and especially fathers is that it, it gives us this command of something that we're to stop doing. We're to stop provoking our children to anger. And again, there's a lot of conflict in child rearing anyway, but let's not make it any worse by provoking our kids to anger. And so the third thing that you and I can do is to remove, that it will help our kids really meet Christ and grow in Him, climb that mountain of life to meet the Lord and know Him. The third thing that we can do is just remove the obstacles that will cause them to stumble along the path. And yes, those obstacles are things like we don't ever take any time for each other, so let's schedule the time to be together so we can engage in focused attention. And maybe there are immoral influences that you've allowed into your home by the internet, by the media, by other influences and things that you've let into your home, and you need to push those kinds of things out. But the big thing that's gonna cause your kids to stumble is if you provoke them as a mother or father or grandparents, if you provoke them to anger. And again, kids get angry anyway when we tell them, no, you can't do that, when you demand that they stay within those set boundaries for their protection and good. But we're talking about when you exasperate them, when you embitter, embitter them, when, when you take away their hope and you cause them to become so angry that they just give up. And that's what we as parents are called on to get rid of and to stop doing that. How do we provoke and exasperate our children? Well, there's a lot of things that we can do. But some things I've seen in my own life and I've witnessed in the lives of other people, I think hypocrisy is a big thing that embitters our kids. We tell them to do one thing, but we do the exact opposite. We say, be honest, tell the truth, don't cheat on tests at school, but we cheat on our taxes. When our kids find out about that, it's exasperating to them. It provokes them. When we say that, you know, you need to be careful and be pure and, and don't overindulge in, you know, controlled substances or things like that, and yet if we're sneaking it on the side, if we've got our own pet um, habits and such that are damaging our lives, then we're hypocrites. And that hypocrisy will embitter our children. Something else that will embitter your children is, is being overly harsh. And there are times where we as moms and dads, and I'll say this as a dad, when I, I would get so angry, I'd lose my temper with my kids. And you can explode, you can say things, you can do things, you can yell in such a way, because you just have had so much, you can, oh, I just feel like I'm gonna snap. And then we let it out on the kids. And that's an exasperating thing. That's a toxic, a toxin that we throw into the relationship. And that poisons our relationship with them and, and causes our kids to stumble in the process. And we can be overly harsh. We can have unrealistic expectations. We expect a toddler to know how to clean up their room. There's certain things we can expect them to do, but maybe they physically aren't able to do it. They don't have the motor control. They don't have the physical strength. They don't have the reasoning capacity. And we give a demand to them, you must do this, and yet they're not capable of doing it. And then we get mad when they don't do it. What's wrong with you, kid? And so sometimes we have these very unrealistic expectations. And many times there's just a, a sense where we, because of our anger, because of our own selfishness, 
we impose a punishment that's not even realistic and fair to the infraction. You're grounded for 30 years because you forgot to take the trash out. I'm being ridiculous, I know. But there's a point where sometimes we are so mad as parents that we impose a punishment on the kids that's not at all fair or consistent or will in any way reinforce proper behavior because the punishment is so overwhelming. Some of you are wondering what, do you, what does the Bible say or what do I think about corporal punishment, about paddling and things like that? I just want to say the Bible says you can do that, but you got to do it in love. And if you, if you can't do it in love, and I'm not talking about loving yourself, but loving the child, if you can't do it under self-control, if you can't do it with gentleness, if you can't do it with, with a calmness, then you shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be doing it at all. You should just put that paddle down. Don't lift it up because you're not able to wield it in a way that is with love. You need to recognize that. The wife of uh, one of the pastors I used to work with when I was a youth pastor at Hagerstown Bible Church, she said the greatest and most important way that someone can correct their children is by correcting the example they set before them. And I think she was absolutely right that there's a, there's a wisdom that comes, not, oh, I've got to make my kids behave. No, why don't you correct your own behavior? Why don't you correct your own example? Why don't you make sure your own life with God is the way it should be and show your kids how to do that too? Correct your own example and then that'll in turn correct your children because they're watching you, Dad. They're watching you, Mom. Do that. And see the change that it brings to their lives when you set a godly example for them. Don't just send your kids to church. Bring them to church. Get engaged in that way and help your kids grow by the example that you set before them. Remove the obstacle of being em embittering them, making them angry in a way that's not appropriate for what's happened. There's so many challenges for our kids to grow up and really meet Christ. Let's not make it any harder than it needs to be. Okay. So correct that example that you set before them. All right. Remove any obstacle, particularly the obstacle uh, to growth that is uh, unwarranted and provoked anger. But then there's a fourth thing that I think it's really important that you and I recognize as, as Christian parents. If our children are going to climb that mountain, if we're going to be the Sherpa guides that will help our kids get to the top and really meet Jesus and know him and follow him and love him with all their hearts, then, then we need to be people that are always pointing them to Jesus. We need to be always pointing them to Jesus. And that's really what Paul is trying to say as the Holy Spirit inspires him at the end of verse 4. Because at the end of verse 4, it says, okay, you stop provoking them to anger, but instead you bring them up, you lift them up, raise them up. It's the idea of nurturing and caring for them and helping them, encouraging them, promoting them, lifting them, doing all of this to help them really know the Lord and follow Him. And you do that how? By two big things, two big tasks, through the instruction or the training, the discipline, and the instruction of the Lord, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so that's what he says here in, in verse 14. Bring, verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, not just, you know, this is what our family believes. This is not just, you know, what our heritage is. This is not just what the school says. But I want you to know this is what Jesus says. 
and I'm trying to follow Jesus, and as I'm trying to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you to follow Jesus too. This is what he says, and I'm speaking for him. Have you ever thought about your parental correction and instruction that you're speaking for the Lord? Have you ever thought about that? Is this what Jesus would want you to say? That's a very humbling, call-you-up-short type of thing to remember, that I'm the mouthpiece of Jesus to my child, that I'm constantly knowing what this word says, and I'm trying to help them understand it and apply it in their lives. And so the first word that he says there, he says the, the idea of discipline. Discipline is not just spanking or timeouts or grounding a kid, you know, when they've done something wrong. It's the idea of, of training them. And it's this repeated guiding, this repeated coaching, this repeated encouragement for them to learn what it really means to know Christ and follow him and do his will. And they're not going to, and I'm going to sit you down, son, and explain to you, this is what you do to love Jesus. And it's, you know, one time, one conversation, you're done. I did my part. No, no you didn't. You got to keep coming at it. Why? Because your kids forget stuff like you do. Your kids struggle with their own wills, bending their wills to the will of God. They struggle with that too, just as you do. They struggle with, with their fears. They struggle with their anxieties. They struggle with their own sense of, I don't have the strength to do it. And that's why we need to keep coming back and keep encouraging them. And if we would remember how hard it's been for us to follow Christ and grow and change in Christ, then recognize our kids are going to have the same kind of struggles. So patiently, we go back and we train them and we teach them and we show them and we encourage them and we model for them what it means to follow Christ. That's what's involved in the discipline that he's talking about here. He's not just talking about spanking. That's like one of the last things that he's talking about there. He's talking about having the attitude of a coach that you're mentoring your child and guiding your child to follow Christ and do his will. But then he says that you do need to take serious this, this aspect of imparting knowledge to your child. And so there is an instruction component, an education component. And you say, well, I believe in Christian education. That's why we bring our kids to kids' church. That's why we have vacation Bible school. That's why there are things like Awana clubs at some of the churches and other you know, good news clubs and other great educational opportunities, student ministries. I'm sure glad Pastor Josh is teaching my kids God's word. And I am too. But the responsibility, according to this passage, is not just on Pastor Josh or the teachers in Kids Church. The responsibility for educating your child and my children rests on me as a parent and you as a parent, particularly dads. It's our responsibility to help our kids understand and apply the Word of God to their lives. And so I think that this means there are times where you sit down as a family and you open the Bible and you read what it says and you talk about it. You have some focused attention around the truth of God's Word. And it doesn't have to be, well, we just ate for a half hour, so we're going to talk for a half hour about God and His plan for your life. And as the kids are falling asleep and sliding out of their booster seats, you're not going to get very far. But if you can just take 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever's appropriate, whatever you need to do, whatever your kids can handle, whatever you can handle as a parent, then take a few minutes, just let me read to you from God's Word. I want you to just listen to these verses. Maybe it's reviewing the verses the kids are learning in Sunday school and kids' church. Maybe it's reading a devotional booklet together. 
Maybe it's them playing with Legos or coloring or their dolls or whatever it is, but they're playing quietly while you read to them and talk about what it says. You sharing the stories of how this verse makes a difference in your life and affects your thinking and your planning and your living. You, for a while there, when our kids were really little, we would read a paragraph. That was about all they could handle. That was about all I could handle of them handling was reading like a paragraph. And we just kind of went through the Gospel of John, read the, read the different stories. We'd read like a paragraph. And I would take a sheet of notebook paper and I would take stick figures and try to draw a picture of what was going on. And, you know, it was, you know, no dad. And someone would grab an eraser and erase it and they'd draw it differently and stuff like that. That's fine. But just, just tried to do that. Tried to help them learn it. And we mixed it up and we changed it and we did different things and we tried it different ways. And there were times where we tried it and we struggled and we didn't do it for a while. And then we came back to it and tried it again and we failed and we tried and succeeded, but then we would fail and we just, but we did try. And I think that's what's involved in the instruction. Somebody needs to take responsibility to show your kid, your child, what God's word says and God's plan for his or her life. And that's on you. And I know in some families, mom's the better reader and explainer. And maybe dad's really good at cleaning up the dishes or cooking the dinner or the breakfast or whatever the right time is. But dad can take responsibility to make sure it gets done even if mom's the one that does it. It's okay. It's just a way of communicating to your kids what God's word says. In all of this, we're pointing to Jesus. And remember, the greatest way that you teach your children, the greatest visual aid your kids will ever have in applying the word of God to their lives, it's not watching a Christian cartoon. It's not watching Christian puppets. It's not watching anything like that. And I'm not against the visual arts. It's hearing and reading the word of God and talking about it together. And then taking a few moments to pray together as a family. It's worth doing because you're investing in your child's life. And remember, it's your example. It's you living it that shows the power, the wonder of God's word. You see, positive parenting is about pointing your kids to Jesus, and we do that through engagement with the word of God and that repeated training them to apply it to their lives. Now, here's the last thing that makes positive parenting positive. In all of this, you find your hope in Jesus. You give your kids hope for their own lives in Jesus, and you as a parent put your hope in Jesus as well. I'm so thankful that early on in our years here at Littlestown Chapel, Dawn and I had the privilege of being out to dinner with Gary and Pam Henson, and we were talking, and, and uh, I think somewhere in the conversation, I was saying, you know, I'm just kind of struggling as a dad, struggling to help my kids really grow spiritually. Maybe Dawn was saying some things. I don't remember the background to all of it, but I remember sitting, used to be Bill Mack's ice cream parlor, but we were sitting over there at the end of our time together, and I remember Gary just saying something like, and Pam shaking her head emphatically, in parenting, there's no guilt and there's no glory. And I'm pretty sure that that statement's not original to them. But there's no guilt in parenting because, yes, you do your best to love your kids and set a godly example for your kids and show them and model it. You do that, of course. But then ultimately, they can make their choice. 
and you can't control that part. So that's the guilt aspect. You don't have to be guilty. But you also can't boast and glorify and say, look what a great parent I am because my son or my daughter has become a missionary. Or they've, they've gone to Bible college and they're, they've graduated top in their class and they know a thousand Bible verses. Look at me, what a great parent I am. And there's no glory in that. There's no glory in that because that was the work of God in that child's life. Yes, through you. Yes, you made some good choices. Yes, you worked hard. Yes, you prayed hard. Yes, you loved them unconditionally. But there's no glory in that because it's ultimately God working in that child's life. So I don't say that, no guilt, no glory, to minimize our responsibility, but I'm trying to take the pressure off because look, we all blow it as parents. There was only one perfect parent and his children rebelled in the Garden of Eden. Wow. So remember that. Remember that. Your hope is in Jesus because you're doing this ministry. Remember, in verse 1, it says, children are obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's what Jesus expects them to do. But it's in the Lord. And then verse 4, when it tells parents are to instruct their children, dads especially are to take responsibility to instruct their parents in the Lord. The wisdom and instruction, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The focus on that little paragraph, the bookends on both parts. It's the Lord. It's about the Lord. It's for the Lord. It's by the Lord. It's to the Lord. He empowers it. It's his message. It's his example. It's his truth. He's the one who provides the power for parents to positively mentor their children. He's the one who gives the guidelines, the life-changing truth that will transform our children for time and eternity. It's he who gives the endurance. It's he who gives the love. Remember, this is in the context of being filled with the Spirit. You can't positively parent your kids without being filled with the Spirit. And I think all the time I was raising my kids, I was praying about every five minutes, Lord, fill me with your Spirit, please. Help me keep loving them. Help me be patient. Help me persist. Help me be wise. Fill me with your Spirit, please, Lord, because I'm empty. Maybe you need a prayer, prayer like that as well. You see, in all of this, it's about pointing your children to Jesus. The thing is, those Sherpas, when they're guiding people to the top of Mount Everest, the climb is not just about avoiding dangers. It's not just being defensive. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. Make sure you do this. It's about seeing the beauty. I mean, you're on the top of the world, the highest place on the surface of the earth. You're standing there. You're planting your personal flag there. It's a tremendous accomplishment. And look at what you're seeing, the vistas, the curvature of the earth, the beautiful valleys, the snow-capped peaks. You're seeing it all, and you would never see it if you stayed down in the valley. And it's the Sherpa guides that know those beautiful sights and they know for you to stop. Hey, I want you to pause right here because this is where you see that beautiful view of those mountain peaks. And, and here, we'll stop here. Look, look out there. Look how majestic that is. And here you are on the summit. Look at this. You could almost touch heaven. We're so high up. You would never see that without a Sherpa guide pointing out the beauty of it all. And that's what parenting is. It's not just helping them avoid the dangers. 
to get to the top, but to see the beauty at the top. This is Jesus, the one who learned to obey his father so he could give his life for you and make you the child of God. He brought you into his family. He's given you his spirit. He's the one that helps us day by day follow him. He's the one that mom and I, dad and I have given our lives to because he gave his life for us. And we trust him. Because parenting, like marriage, is all about Jesus. As we draw near to him and find our hope in him, he in turn will help us be the kind of parents that help our kids climb that mountain and become all they can be in Christ. I trust that you'll be encouraged today that parenting is hard, but it's worth it. I hope you'll see that, yes, it requires a lot, it draws a lot, it demands a lot from you, your kids do, but you get a lot because in the process you get Jesus and all that he has for you. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you this day. Thank you, Father in heaven, that we have this chance to to just really ponder the fact that in all of this business of parenting and grandparenting and coaching and teaching and mentoring the next generation, Lord, help us to see that ultimately we get to see and know you and do it with you. I pray that you'd help every young person and every child that's here today to understand that even when their parents make mistakes and even when it's hard to obey and honor mom and dad, I pray that you'd help them to do it because of Christ and for his glory and with his help. And I pray that you'd help every one of us moms and dads to to truly love and sacrifice for our children and to bless them and, and build them up and to point them to Jesus always because he alone is our hope. I ask that you'd help us to persevere in that. And I ask that you'd help us this day, this Mother's Day, Lord, help us to honor our moms. Help us to respect our parents. Help us to care for them. And Lord, I ask in all of this that we would be faithful to you, that Christ would be seen in our homes and that his transforming power would be unleashed in us. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.